a video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. Hey, my name's Steve Hall, and I want to thank you for joining our Bible study today. Before we get into today's Bible study, I would like to invite you to come to check out our Standing Firm Bible study class in person. We're at Fairview Baptist Tabernacle in Sweetwater, Tennessee. We meet in the downstairs fellowship hall of the auditorium building at 10.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings immediately after the 9 o'clock worship service. Here's a little map for you. See the little red lines? (laughs) Notice if you're in the auditorium, just follow those red arrows. If you're in the back, go straight down that hallway behind you to the stairwell. If you're near the front of the auditorium, you can go out the left door, and I mean left as you're sitting in the auditorium looking toward the pulpit and the choir. Go to your left, go out that door, all the way down to the end of the hall, keep to your left, all the way down to the stairwell, and then turn right and go down the stairwell. We meet in the fellowship hall around the tables near the kitchen downstairs. If you have trouble with stairs, there are men driving golf carts near the entrance to the auditorium building at the crossover there who will be glad to give you a ride to a door that enters the building on our level, so you won't have to do any steps at all. We're a co-educational class, men and women both invited. We're for all ages, doesn't matter how old or how young. Children and youth are certainly welcome, but some children and youth actually prefer to go to the children and youth classes, which meet at the same time we meet, more on their level. Dress, totally casual. Class members are certainly encouraged to participate in the Bible study, ask questions, engage in conversation. But listen, if you happen to be kind of shy, we promise we're not going to embarrass you. We're not going to ask you to read. We're not going to ask you to pray. We're not going to ask you any specific questions directed to you. It isn't unusual for class members who are kind of shy just to not say anything at all once class gets started. So that's your choice. So I'm just saying, please don't feel intimidated if you happen to be the shy type. I know sometimes the first meeting is kind of tough for the shy people. But there's never been a time when it's been more important for God's people to meet in small Bible study fellowship groups in order to encourage each other. We've got to stand firm in his truth. We've got to stand firm on his word. These are very confusing days we're living in. You know that. So we'd love for you to join us and just see for yourself what God's doing in our class. If you'd like more information... Go to AboundingJoy.com. There's the web address right there on the screen. You can click on the Standing Firm Bible Class menu item when you get there. You may want to hit pause right now or do a screen save to get make sure you get the spelling right, but you can learn more information about us there. Now, here's today's Bible study. I hope and pray it helps you grow stronger in our Lord Jesus Christ and in your knowledge of His Word and of His will for your life. Well, hey guys, thanks for joining me in Bible study again today. We are still in the book of Romans chapter 6. You may remember that in verse 5 of chapter 6, Paul made a statement that contains two parts. We've looked at this in previous studies. The first part of chapter 5, verse 5, tells us that we were united with Christ in his death. And then he elaborates on that, explains it, expounds on it in verses 6 and 7. And he makes four points here. Our old man was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be rendered powerless, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. We've looked at all of that last time we were in Romans. Then in verses 8 through 10, which we'll look at today, 
he expounds on the last part of verse 5. Certainly, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Remember, the theme of this entire section is our unity with Christ. We were once in Adam. We were once slaves. We were once partakers of Adam's sin and guilt, slaves to sin. Now we're in Christ Jesus, and we're sharers in his death and life and victory over sin. We've come out of one realm, the realm of sin and darkness and bondage, and we've come into a new realm, the realm of freedom and life and light in Christ. So let's begin again and get the context. It's been a while since we looked at it, so let's work our way through this again. Just read it beginning in chapter 5, verse 20. This is God's word. And the law came in that the transgression might increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? (laughs) May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death. In order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be rendered powerless, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So, beginning in verse 8, once again we see a future tense in verse 8, as there was in verse 5. We've already considered this. We shall also live with him. And on the surface, we might guess that he's referring to something that's going to happen to us in the future, maybe in heaven or after the resurrection. But remember the context. This is so important. The whole point of this passage is to refute those who say, let's just continue in sin that grace may increase. If he's referring to our future in this passage, it's pointless to his argument. It doesn't have any bearing on his argument. It's clear from the context he's talking about the here and now. In verse 4, the last part, he said, So we too might walk in newness of life. When? Someday in the future? No, no, right now. In verse 11, Even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. When? Someday in the future? No, right now. Colossians chapter 2, verse 12, he's referring to the same truth. He uses a past tense there, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him. So why did he use this future tense at all in Romans 6? Well, just to stress the certainty of the sequence. First comes death, then comes burial, then comes resurrection to our new way of life. Christ died and was buried. He didn't stay buried. He rose from the dead. We died with him. Certainly we'll be raised with him. Resurrection is future to death. That's why he uses the future tense. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5 and verse 6 says, When we were dead in our transgressions, he made, past tense, he made us alive. 
together with Christ and raised us up, past tense, with him. Now look at verses 9 and 10. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. What's he doing here in verses 9 and 10? Well, first we need to make it very clear. I think it's very clear. He's not talking about us in verses 9 and 10. He's going to get back to us. But right here, he's not talking about us. In these verses, he's talking very clearly about Jesus. He's showing us very clearly what happened to our Lord Jesus Christ. So before we consider further how we are supposed to respond to our situation in life, our troubles, our tests, our circumstances, for a moment here, we've got to kind of forget about ourselves and focus entirely on Jesus just for a few minutes. Because when we see clearly in verses 9 and 10 what his relationship to sin is, then we look at verse 11 and we can draw conclusions for us based on the fact that we are united with him, our unity with Christ. So at least here in verses 9 and 10, he's not talking about us. He's talking about Jesus. And first he says, Christ has been raised from the dead. We've talked about this before. What the resurrection of Christ proves. The resurrection of Christ proves that God was completely satisfied with Jesus' work on the cross. It was perfect. It was exactly what needed to be done. The resurrection of Christ also proves that Christ conquered sin and death and hell and the grave. He's the victor. He conquered it. And then he says, he's never to die again. Christ is never to die again. Why not? Well, obviously, there's no more need. We're going to come back to this. Now, look at the last phrase of verse 9. Death is no longer master over him. Okay, death is no longer master over him. What, what, what could that mean? Because the words no longer, I mean, that's pretty significant, isn't it? I mean, those words certainly imply there was a time when death was master over him. How did that happen? You remember how Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote in 1 Corinthians 15 that the sting of death is sin? Sin is the agent that produces death. So when we look at Jesus dying on the cross, we see him truly under the power of death and its sting, which is sin. But of course, Jesus never sinned. And this is the essential message of the gospel. He's taken upon himself our sins, and it was the sting of our sins that stung him to death. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin, perfect, he did not sin, he was sinless, to be sin, he took our sins on himself, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He took our sins on himself, therefore came under the penalty of the law, and that was death for sin. The power of sin is the law. So he submitted himself to death, and at that moment, death became his master. How do we know that no longer, that's the key word there, no longer has power over him? We know because of the resurrection. So the resurrection is why we don't need to fear death anymore. Death is a defeated enemy. 1 Corinthians 15, 26 says, The last enemy that will be abolished is death. And he's already conquered it. It's extremely important. It's extremely powerful. It's, it's important truth and powerful truth that we need to use against Satan 
when we're fighting him as part of our spiritual warfare because he's going to attack with all he's got if we don't know how to fight back. You remember Revelation 12, a wonderful passage of scripture that we can use in our spiritual warfare and we can simply say to Satan, Satan, I want to remind you, I overcome you with the blood of the lamb, the word of my testimony, loving not my life even to the death. We have victory over Satan. That's by the blood of the lamb, by what Jesus did for us on the cross. Hebrews 2.14, that through death, Satan hates to be reminded of this. This is a great spiritual warfare verse. That through death, he might render powerless. He might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Devil, Satan had the power of death and Jesus just destroyed it. (laughs) He, He conquered it, took it away. God refers to this when he tells us in Colossians chapter 2, he says, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. He disarmed them. Their main weapon was death. Jesus took it away. He defeated death. He disarmed them. Verse 10 says, he died to sin. There's another interesting phrase. He died to sin. What does that mean? It might be tempting to conclude, well, maybe it's just another way of saying that he died for our sins. Of course, we know he died for our sins. That's critically important. That's the gospel. But that's not exactly what he's talking about here in this verse. The parallel he's giving here makes that really not make sense, that it means the same as he died for our sins, because he's telling us in this passage that since we are in Christ, what's true of him is true of us. You see, that's the whole point here. But, of course, it could never be said of us that we died for sin. That's nonsense. Only Jesus could die for sin. Got to remember the context. (laughs) Don't forget the context. And in verse 2, he said, we died to sin. And we've already looked at this. We, we, We died to the realm of sin. We died to the rule of sin. We died to the reign of sin. We died to our old relationship to sin. In the same way, he's telling us here that Jesus for a time, voluntarily put himself into a relationship to sin. But he died to that relationship. He died to that relationship. He died to sin. Again, notice that he uses the words once for all. Once for all. He's just reemphasizing what he said in verse 9, never to die again. The meaning is once and once forever, or once and only once. Once and never to be repeated again. It's not necessary. Once was enough. (laughs) In the book of Hebrews, God really drives that point home. In the the New Testament, he emphasizes very heavily this once for allness of Jesus' sacrifice. And we find him contrasting, whoever the writer of Hebrew was, but ultimately it's the Holy Spirit, of course. He's, He's contrasting what Jesus did with what the Old Testament priests had to do. The Old Testament priests had to come back to the altar over and over and over and over, presenting sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice over and over and over. You can read all that in Hebrews chapter 7 and chapter 9 if you want to check that out. So when Jesus died to sin, he died once and forever. He completed the work of atonement. There's no need at all for him to come back and do it again. His death was once for all. And there's one more phrase we need to look at in verse 10. The life that he lives, he lives to God. He died to sin, he lives to God. So what does that mean? 
Is he referring to his obedience? No, he was always obedient to God. There was never a time when he disobeyed at all. This is going to be very important now because when we get to verse 11, next time we study this, we'll see he will tell us that because of our unity with him, we also are alive to God. He just means this. For a little while, Jesus lived in this realm of sin. He lived under the reign of sin and of death. But he isn't there now. He died to it. He was raised from the dead and he was received back into glory with God, the Father. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. By the way, this is likely one of those oral creeds. We run into them from time to time in the New Testament that God gave the early church before the New Testament was ever written down so they could recite these oral creeds to each other and quote them in their worship services, memorize them, pass them on, share them with each other, remind themselves of this wonderful truth that the Holy Spirit was giving them even before they had the New Testament. Look at these words. And by common confession... Great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. He returned to the Father. Hebrews 4.15 says, Jesus was tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin. But that couldn't have been true before he left glory to live as a man as one of us, he, that, that, that doesn't make any sense. Because in James 1.13, we read, God can't be tempted with evil. But Jesus was, because Jesus entered the realm of sin. And for a time, he voluntarily allowed himself to be cut off from the realm of God. This is beyond our understanding. We can't put this together. But he was separated from God the Father. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane? Remember the agony? Remember the sweat drops of blood? Why? Because from all eternity, he had enjoyed total oneness, unity with the Father and the Holy Spirit. No taint of sin to mar that perfect relationship ever. God can't even be tempted by sin. But then he submitted himself to sin and he was separated from his father. And so he cries out on the cross from Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that point, he was no longer in the realm of God. He was cut off from his father. Our sin did that. He took our sin on himself. And verse 10 simply tells us that now, once again, he lives to God. Conquered sin, conquered death, conquered hell, conquered Satan, rose again, and is returned to the realm of the Father. You remember the high priestly prayer that Jesus prayed? John chapter 17. He said these words, and now, praying to the Father, and now glorify me together with yourself, Father, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I'm ready to return to the glory, Father. He had to get through the cross, but he did that perfectly. And of course, that prayer was answered. So the King of glory came down to this earth. Why? Because of his grace, because of his mercy, because of his love. He humbled himself and he put himself inside the realm of sin and he put himself inside the realm of death. Why? For you and for me. So that we could be redeemed. So that we could be ransomed from the enemy. We didn't have any hope 
until Jesus came and died in our place for our sins. We were slaves without hope. But now he's purchased us for God. He finished the work he came to do. His resurrection proves that his work was fully accepted by the Father, and now he's no longer in that realm of sin and death. He's in the realm of glory of God. And that's the truth God's giving us here concerning our Lord Jesus Christ. We must make sure that's very clear in our own hearts and minds. So, Father, we thank you so much for these verses, and thank you for this powerful chapter as we've dug into it phrase by phrase and word by word. Thank you for teaching us what Jesus did so clearly. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you were willing to leave the realm of glory of the Father to come into this realm of sin and darkness. And thank you that you handled it perfectly. Thank you that you were tempted like we are, yet without sin. Thank you that when you went to the cross, you didn't have to do it for your sake. You had to do it for our sake. And you chose to do it for our sake because of your infinite love, your grace, your mercy toward us. We're amazed. You went through all of that. You took all of our sin. You were separated from the Father. And you conquered it. And you rose again. And Father, how we thank you that you made this plan and worked it to perfection as you do all of your works. So Lord, thank you that Jesus is now back in your presence and has been ever since he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, back into the glory of your presence, your glory. Thank you, Lord, that one of these days we're going to be in that glory too. And right now we can enjoy your presence and your power and victory over sin. Thank you that we've been set free from this slavery and that we can live to you also now. And looking forward and anticipating the day when we'll be in those glorified bodies, living with you in your glory forever. All because of Jesus. Thank you so much. In his name. Amen.